I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wurundjeri and Boorong people. I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I just really like being able to use my experience to to help the little guy out. You know, I can't I can't help loving an underdog. I think that that's probably a pretty Australian trait. Um, and it always feels nice to be showing up to work, knowing that it's it's really dedicated and passionate people that you're helping out, and and not just you know ticking boxes on a corporate spreadsheet. I suppose this is the Over the Glass podcast. I'm Shante Whale. Fred Siggins has been in hospitality for over 20 years and has mixed drinks at some of Melbourne's most notorious bars. Writer, consultant and educator, he can now be found telling stories and drinking whiskey as the brand manager at Mighty Craft Spirits. Hi, Fred. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Ah, such a pleasure. So, uh, Fred, being the total creep that I am, I was looking through your Instagram and I was thrilled to see that we have two photos that are exactly the same and you're not going to, totally not going to guess what they are. Two photos that are exactly the same. Yeah, so we've both posted the same exact thing. The first one is a close-up of a praying mantis. Ah, cool. (laughs) And the second one is um, a close-up of a pine lime spice. Like, you know that moment as you're about to bite into a pine lime spice and you're just like, oh, my God, this is the best moment of my life. (laughs) Oh, it's the best, especially when you get that first really hot day in Melbourne after a miserable winter and you're just like, oh, it's time. It's happening. <laughs> totally. I was saying that the other day to my partner. I was like, my God, how good's a pine lines fly? It's like, why aren't these the most, like, they're totally underrated. And then he was saying, well, what about like Buller Splits? They're not too bad. And I was like, oh, I forgot about the good old Buller Split. It was kind of like the second rate pine line splice. Yeah. Yeah. I reckon so. <laughs> Um, I feel like the bullet split, like you tend to end up with more of those ones that are freezer burned and, you know, have all the, uh, have all the, the ice crystals on them. Yeah. So true. And you forget that you've got one right in the back and then you find it and you're just like, nah, it's, it's too far gone. <laughs> That's it. So there you go. You've tapped into my interests. Um, pictures of, of tiny, cool creatures and pine lime splices. <laughs> totally. And I totally get it. So, Fred, tell us a little bit about how you got your start um, in the beverage industry. You've had an incredible career so far, and and you have so many accolades and um, titles to your to your profession. But tell me a little bit how you got your your start. Um, I, I started out in hospitality at the age of sixteen, just working as a as a prep cook, um, basically to pay for my uh, long distance phone bill to my long distance girlfriend at the time, because that's that's how that worked back in the nineties. You actually had to pay for a, a phone bill on a landline, um, and and my mum was like, "I'm not paying that for you. You better get a job, kid." So. Um, I started, I started working in kitchens when I was in high school and, um, paid my way through uni that way. Um, and then after uni sort of moved more into the bar as a way of kind of being a bit more, a bit more social, I suppose, um, really kind of liking that social aspect of, of hospitality. So yeah, that's, that's how it happened. And where, where was your first post, um, working at 16 and then where did you go where things started to get a bit more serious? Uh, my first post was working at a sort of local cafe in the small town in North Carolina where I went to high school that was just run by a couple of local hippies. So we just did, you know, sandwiches and ice cream and that type of stuff. Um, and yeah, all, all through uni when I was working, it was really just a way to make money. So I wasn't working anywhere serious. Um, and it wasn't really until I started bartending that I kind of started thinking of hospitality as a little bit more of a career choice. Um, I, I worked at a 
fine dining French restaurant in Brisbane called Belle Epoque. And so that's when I started getting exposed to really nice wine and good whiskey and, you know, classic cocktails and all of the, all of the really fun stuff that you can find behind a bar. Fantastic. And then you, you would, you said Carolina, did you say? So you just traveled and kind of, or you grew up over there? No, no. So I'm, I'm a dual citizen. Uh, my mother is American. So I went to high school and uni in the US. Oh, amazing. Oh, that's so nice yeah. being out, have dual citizenship. I mean, maybe not right at this very moment, but still incredible. And then when did you, um, when did you move to Melbourne? Uh, I moved, so I was born in Melbourne. I grew up here, went to primary school here. I moved back to Melbourne permanently about 11 years ago. Oh, fantastic. And is that when you started, when was that when you were at Black Pearl? Because, you know, the Black Pearl is a total Fitzroy institution. Um, it's an iconic venue. But for all of those people that haven't been there, can you tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day life was like there and kind of how you found your way there? And you were there for quite some time, right? Yeah, I, I was at Pearl for about three and a half years. Um, I was lucky enough when I first moved to Melbourne to get a job at a bar right up the road from Pearl called the Kodiak Club, which was really the sort of first bar in Australia um, to do that kind of North American style kind of bourbon and wings and burgers and that type of stuff. Um, And so the guys from Pearl would come down and sit at my bar and do shots of bourbon and eat wings. And that's how I got to know them. So I um, moved over to Pearl after about a year and a half at Kodiak and yeah, was there for three and a half years. Um, day-to-day life at the Pearl was, it was really interesting. You know, it was definitely, that was back in the days when they were open seven days a week till three in the morning every day. So it was pretty, pretty sort of full on hospo life. We didn't really socialize much outside of the Pearl crew. Those were like our mates as well as our coworkers. And yeah, we'd, we'd sleep in pretty late, get up pretty late, go have a coffee, go to work, um, smash out service for 12 or 14 hours sit around, have a couple of drinks, and then go home and go to sleep. Sounds crazy. I mean, I don't, I'd like to say those days aren't behind us, but, um, yeah, especially those later finishes at, like, 3 a.m. I mean, in Sydney, you can't, you can't find uh, hardly anywhere that, that can do that anymore. Um, but what did you learn when you were there, and what, what, um, what kind of impact has that had on your long term, do you think? Oh, mate, I learned so much when I was there. Um, you know, it, it was really probably the place that taught me about um, – it really being about the customer first and foremost. That was one of the things that was always so great about working there is that it's not a place that was overly focused on the liquid. It was always, the liquid was always really good, but it was always about making sure that people had a good time treating our guests and our regulars as mates and making sure that they were relaxed and safe um, and, and able to have a good time. And then in terms of the, the sort of, cocktail side of things it really allowed me to kind of spread my wings a little bit and start playing with interesting flavors and interesting techniques you know having people like nathan beasley and evan stanley and chris highstead um as mentors was absolutely incredible um and they really encouraged me to to do all that stuff and during my time at pearl is when i started doing pretty well in cocktail competitions and things like that too so yeah a a really incredible learning opportunity i want to touch on that because i think the world of cocktails it's a little bit like wine sometimes is that um the people in it it's all inclusive and there's so so many um opportunities to do competitions and things like that but for a lot of other people we don't know a lot about it so can you tell us a little bit about cocktail competitions maybe touch on a little bit about um kind of internationally how they're recognized for me sure well i mean look i think the the 
the real kind of raison d'etre behind cocktail competitions is marketing. You know, it's, it's a way for brands to get people using their product, thinking about their product, talking about their product, promoting it for them. And it's a way of brands to be able to sort of tap into the creativity and talent of bartenders um, to, to really sort of amplify their products. And then obviously from the other side, it's a really great way for bartenders to practice their skills and push themselves and also, um, you know, potentially become uh, more widely known in the industry. I think that most bartenders who end up moving into um, sales rep jobs or ambassadorial jobs, brand management jobs, usually get to know that side of things through cocktail competitions. And that was certainly the case for me. Yeah. Okay. And what was your, do you, is there a cocktail that you was really significant to you that you kind of put forward that you feel really happy about to that, to this day, or do you look back at those cocktails now and kind of think, Oh, how, how much things have changed and what are your thoughts looking back? I mean, I, I am actually, you know, pretty proud of most of the drinks that I, I put up that were successful because my approach to cocktail making has always been just twists on classics. So taking classic formulas that you know are going to work and telling an interesting story around them, putting an in a little bit of a twist on them so that they're something new. But, um, you know, it's like it's like the old thing with, with music is that there's nothing new, like all good music is stolen. And that's always been my approach to cocktails. So, yeah, I'm still pretty happy with, with the drinks that I put up, I think. I think they, they stand the test of time. Yeah, I think that, like, especially with the classics – They've, like you said, they've stood the test of time, but they also tell a story that comes way before us. And so sometimes I think, you know, just figuring out where that, that first original cocktail came from and what, what the world was like back at that time and why why it made sense bringing those ingredients together is always a fascinating tale. And and, and a, lot of, a lot of us don't know, you know, the humble beginnings of, um, you know, say the Negroni or the, the Brooklyn or whatever it may be. So that's pretty cool. Um, you moved into um, Sullivan's Cove at one stage as well, which is, you know, one of Australia's most well-known luxury whiskey brands. Um, what was it like working at Sullivan Cove and how did you, how did you find yourself there? So um, while I was at Black Pearl, I started just uh, working there part-time and basically started my own kind of bar and beverage consultancy doing sort of events management and uh, sort of freelance brand management for startup brands. And through that, I met the managing director of Sullivan's Cove um, and he decided to get me on board full-time to, to help out with that brand. Wow. Well, that was a smart move on his part. What did you? What do you love about whiskey and what do you love about particularly about Su Sullivan's Cove that you took away from there? Other than it, it's won some absolutely amazing awards and it is so um, sometimes very hard to get your hands on a bottle. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, look, the thing that I love about whiskey, I think, is the whole idea of patience, you know, and the idea that um, good whiskey takes time and that if you want to make whiskey, you've got to be really dedicated to it because it's not something that you can just crank out. And, you know, the idea that oftentimes the whiskey that you are involved in making is almost for the next generation. You know, you might not see it for five years, 10 years, 20 years down the line. And that to me is really quite beautiful. Just the idea of um, letting nature take its course in terms of the interaction with the liquid and the oak. And it's such a, um, such a simple thing and such a complicated thing at the same time. You know, you just got malted barley, yeast, water, run it through a still, stick it in a barrel. Um, but from that very basic process, you have one of the most chemically and flavor 
complex um, beverages that humans have ever created. So I think that that's just super cool. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they, you know, they are, they are these people that are thinking so far ahead and, and um, such a, a big scale, you know, which is incredible. And it's so um, unselfish in a way, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and yeah, so being able to be a part of that and then see it be meaningful to people, you know, in the same way that making somebody a really beautiful cocktail and telling them a really nice story about it, um, seeing that engagement, being able to make somebody's night and then seeing how a really good bottle of whiskey has a culture around it. It's not, again, not just about the liquid, it's about creating an experience for somebody and, and seeing how much Sullivan's Cove fans, they're really, you know, it, it really is properly an important part of their lives beyond just, you know, a, a fancy bottle of whiskey that they can show off to their friends. Yeah. I think that whiskey is one of those um, drinks that, again, people get a little bit scared of because they think that you know, they can be really expensive and having a little look on the list, they're like, oh, I want to try whiskey, but I don't want to spend, you know, $430. And so they're, they're cautious about asking questions. And it's kind of like, oh, whiskey is this big world. If somebody's starting in whiskey, where would you – kind of direct them to start if you said you know i don't mind drinking whiskey say my, my brother's like 21 he's like oh, i think i like whiskey where would you kind of get them to start or what what would you say to somebody that's starting out in in, in their love and passion of of trying whiskey well look it's a really good point because there's a lot of gatekeeping in whiskey and it's really unfortunate you know i think that for a long time those of us who have worked in whiskey marketing have kind of shot ourselves in the foot basically by saying that you're not old enough rich enough male enough white enough or english speaking enough to be able to drink this um and you know there are certainly people out there who will you know sneer and look down their noses at people who just want to drink jameson or just want to drink jack daniels and coke um but I obviously always try to tell people that there's no wrong way to drink whiskey. You should just be enjoying it. That's the point. Um, so for somebody who's starting out, I would say find a good whiskey bar where the people behind the bar are kind and knowledgeable and open and willing to share. Um, you know, somewhere like Whiskey and Ailment in Melbourne is an absolutely brilliant example. Um, and even if you've only got $10 to spend or $15 to spend or $20 to spend, they can take you on a journey and, and help you learn the language around being able to um, find the things you like. Absolutely. That is such good advice because I, I literally was out to dinner the other night and we went to Shady Pines and I said the same thing is sitting up at the bar is one of the best experiences you can do because it's so accessible and people really, if they can see that you're slightly interested, they will take you on such a ride and it's one of the best things we can do. But I actually found that we don't, you know, not for a long time did we have that kind of culture in Australia. Sitting at the bar, you know, often you, you didn't get any interaction, but now it's um we've really come into it at its own time. So what, what are some of the, like you, you mentioned a couple, but where else do you think if you're in Melbourne or other places within Australia, would you suggest going and having that experience of kind of talking to a bartender over the wood? Um, I would say as far as whiskey is concerned, Cobbler in Brisbane is a really good one. Um, you've got a couple of brilliant places in Adelaide, like uh, Clever Little Taylor, a really good place to um, sort of try some interesting whiskeys. Um, and then in Sydney, places like the Baxter Inn, absolutely incredible. But just with the Baxter, it's better to go early in the week because 
on a weekend, they'll be so packed they won't really have time to talk to you. I totally agree. I always say Monday to Thursday at 4 p.m. is a really good time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's just that thing like if, if you're sitting at the bar and say, hey, I like drinking Jameson, but maybe I want to try something a little bit different and the bartender sneers at you, then you're in the wrong place. Perfect. I love that. Um, Fred, what do you think makes Australian spirits um, and the beverage street scene of Australia kind of unique on an international scale? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I'm just so, so excited about where Australian beverages are at right now. You know, I feel like we're really having an absolute um, heyday in terms of the wine that we're making and in terms of the beer that we're making. Um because I feel like we have started to be less parochial about it and less, you know, um, trying to imitate European styles with our wine and beer and really kind of leaning into the, uh, I guess, the, the beauty of the Australian climate and the Australian terroir and being able to do our own thing. I think that spirits is a little bit behind in terms of that because it's a newer industry. Um, in terms of craft spirits, but I'm just so excited to to see where it goes. Um, you know, being able to use uniquely Australian flavors, and again, relying on Australian terroir and Australian climate to um, really define what Australian spirits can be beyond imitations of imported styles is is just a super exciting thing to be a part of. Absolutely. And you've got a couple of those in. Uh, we'll touch a little bit later on Mighty Craft Spirits, but um, we've both been judges at the Glorious Drink Easy Awards. Can you tell everyone a little bit about your part that you play in Drink Easy Awards and kind of what that's kind of brought in terms of your experience of, of judging um, drinks and, and beverages? Well, unfortunately, my part in, in Drink Easy Awards this year was nothing because of, of border closures and stuff, so I didn't get to participate. But um, the, uh, the first time around... I suppose, yeah, I was just really into the whole concept of judging drinks on their merit rather than judging them on the basis of a style guide because those style guides um, are restrictive. And I understand why they exist, and I think that those competitions are important. Um, but, you know, I, I think that natural wine, to use a, a, a contentious term, is, is probably a good example of where one person's fault is somebody else's delicious. So if a, if a drink does what it needs to do and there are consumers out there that want to drink it and there's an appropriate occasion for it, then it should be recognized for that. And so that's really the, the ethos that we tried to bring to Drink Easy and for me in particular, trying to bring an understanding of how people consume spirits and why people consume spirits and, and trying to get the rest of the judges to understand that and to say that, you know, just because we have a law in Australia that says that rum has to be aged for two years doesn't mean that an unaged cane spirit can't still be absolutely delicious and um, and really kind of worthy of, of our attention. Yeah, and a place on the market, right? I mean... Exactly. Um, Mighty Craft Spirits um, is a company that represents some really incredible and interesting and in-demand spirits. It's got Kangaroo Island Spirits, 78 Degrees Distillery, um, Ballistic Beer Company. What, what does it mean to be a brand manager for so many wonderful uh, companies? Uh, well, it means I'm busy. Uh, um, 
but yeah, the the idea behind Mitercraft is is really wonderful because it's just really a collective of craft beverage producers. So the idea is to really use our collective marketing and distribution power to be able to amplify really incredible craft brands that would have a lot of trouble competing against the multinational imported stuff um, on our own. You know, so a small distillery like 78 Degrees or Kangaroo Island or, you know, Seven Seasons would really struggle to to get the shelf placement and to, you know, have enough reps on the ground and all that kind of stuff to, to get in front of people compared to your Diageos and Bacardis. Um, but people really want to be drinking Australian spirits. They really want to be supporting local businesses. So by being able to kind of combine forces, we're, we're able to amplify that stuff in a, in a really exciting way. Absolutely. And what does it mean to you? Like Kangaroo Kangaroo Island Spirits had a bit of a tough time, as we know, um, during the last couple of years. What does it mean to kind of represent the smaller guys as opposed to the kind of bigger guys on a big scale? Um, Well, I I just really like being able to use my experience to to help the little guy out. You know, I can't I can't help loving an underdog. I think that that's probably a pretty Australian trait. Um, and it always feels nice to be showing up to work, knowing that it's it's really dedicated and passionate people that you're helping out, and and not just you know ticking boxes on a corporate spreadsheet, I suppose. Um, but yeah, for somebody like Kangaroo Island, who's obviously really been through the ringer, to then be able to say, look, as far as marketing, distribution, branding, all that kind of stuff, that's really hard to do, logistics. Like, we, we got you guys. All you have to do is, um, you know, continue to make awesome booze and, and we'll make sure it gets to people. Kangaroo Island Spirits uses a lot of local ingredients. With the fires that happened, what has what have they done to combat that? How are they recovering from that? Well, things are looking pretty good there um, these days and there's a lot of infrastructure that's been built on the island now because there's been some really great involvement from the South Australian Tourism Authority and, um, you know, even from the federal government and stuff in terms of recovery. So it's actually looking really exciting over there right now you know the gardens have been uh have been sort of flourishing and we've got all sorts of exciting stuff um growing there some beautiful flavors that we can use in the gins and you know there's sort of um hospitality experiences and accommodation experiences that are being rebuilt and um we're actually in the process of sort of redoing our distillery and visitor center and all that kind of stuff there as well um so really yeah just trying to encourage people to come over and see it yeah, that's fantastic. And I mean, it's always been a place where it, it's just so beautiful to visit and incredible animals and, and incredible scenery. So we really need to continue to go there and make sure that they um, that it's still a special place in Australia, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, recently, uh, during lockdown, uh, I had some friends of mine, good friends that decided to do um, a cocktail swap at home. And I, so we had to come up with a couple of cocktails. We dropped them off in jars and sent them around. I was kind of horrified at what I looked at in my pantry in terms of making cocktails. I've got some nice gins, some nice whiskeys, and then some other stuff that sat in there and hasn't been open for about 12 years. If you were to set up a home kind of cocktail set for somebody, what are the kind of staples you should have in your cupboard? Look, I always think that, you know, you absolutely need a, a decent bottle of gin and a decent bottle of whiskey um, just as, as very sort of like basic things to start with. When it comes to making cocktails at home, my my go-tos tend to be 
Manhattans, Negronis, and Martinis because you don't need a lot of perishable ingredients. It's it's almost one of those things of like, you know, having worked in commercial kitchens, sometimes I actually struggle to cook at home because I don't have access to all of the tools that I'm used to. And the same thing can be true in the bar, like when you don't have a commercial ice machine and you don't have, you know, a fruit company delivering 20 kilos of citrus to you every morning. Um, so those are the things that I tend to struggle with, like having on hand, having fresh citrus and and, and enough good ice on hand. Um, so I tend to go for the the pretty easy ones. So yeah, a decent bottle of vermouth, always in the fridge and um, always, uh, you know, pumped if you have a wine pump and it's open. And then, yeah, a good bottle of, of Campari or an, an Australian equivalent so that you can you can always knock out a Negroni or a Manhattan whenever you need to. Yeah, makes total sense to me. <laughs> I think the, the people I make cocktails for said, oh, they're really boozy. And I was like, well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and for me, always a jar of um, cocktail onions as well because I, Giz- uh, I love a Gibson. Delicious. I totally agree. Um, in terms of um, you doing kind of lots of kind of food and cook, I can see a lot at home as well. Uh, I actually think that, that spirits and cocktails are fantastic paired with, with food, but it's something that perhaps we don't see as much as what I'd like to see. Um, have you got a, a pairing that you think particularly works well when you're looking at something like spirits and pairing it with food or just something simple that, that is a go-to for you? Yeah, absolutely. And and look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've actually gotten in trouble for sort of saying publicly sometimes that I don't really think that cocktails and food are, are always an awesome pairing, but it very much depends on the setting. Um, I think that, you know, martinis and oysters is absolutely one of the best things ever. And, you know, tacos and margaritas so there are these great like if you can tell a story around it and create a sort of cultural experience around it i'm I'm all for it um i think that my go-to's are probably whiskey and cheese is definitely one of my favorite things like if i'm drinking a good single malt whiskey and um you know in a social setting and so that you want some snacks around uh, whiskey and cheese is is always brilliant yeah yeah, and you know, I, I tend to agree with you, but um, what I always say, and, and I, I've done a, a drinks pairing here at Key, is that I always say is like it it has to be tried and tested. So the alcohol levels can really affect um, the the warmth and how it affects the food. So it has to be tried and tested. And I think you can make great pairings, but I think that they're going to be picked over and they're going to be scrutinized more than anything else. So therefore, they have to be really killer pairings, or just don't do it. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, I think the the big thing is like when it comes to wine and beer, obviously sort of purpose built to be paired with food because they're lower alcohol and lower in sugar and generally, um, you know, lower in acid. And so there's like not as many competing flavors. Um, So if you are going to do cocktails and food, you just want big food. You want stuff that's got nice, big, bold flavors that's going to stand up to the booze and the sugar and the acid. So again, like... Um, you know, Mexican food and margaritas, it's going to work. Totally agree. So what's happening for you uh, come 2022? What are you looking forward to? What's exciting that's happening in your world at the moment? Uh, Well, I'm just really looking, you know, at at this point, I'm relatively new to the Mighty Craft role. So I started in October after working exclusively with 78 Degrees for a couple of months prior to that. And I'm just looking forward to hopefully having a normal year where we're not constantly going in and out of lockdowns and, you know, watching the hospitality industry start to thrive again, um, getting back out and doing events. 
Um, you know, we've got a we've got a pop up bar that we're doing at the Ashes at the Adelaide Oval in a couple of weeks, and so that's really exciting to be able to have thirty five thousand people a day come through the bar and actually try some um, some seventy eight degrees drinks. Uh, yeah, so I think I'm I'm just looking forward to hopefully what is a more normal year in in the world of of booze and hospitality. All we can do is hope, mate. <laughs> That's it. That's it. And maybe coming to Sydney and having a glass of wine with you. I don't know. Does that sound crazy? Not at all. I think that sounds like a plan. And if I find out that you're here and you haven't come to visit me, I'll be upset. Uh, don't worry about it. It won't happen. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, the one thing I can say is that the guests are back. They are thirsty and people are ready to celebrate. So we're all here ready to go, uh, as you are too. So let's just hope that um, the weather stands up, the world stands up and we can uh, – look forward to better times i'm totally with you on that and i'm crossing everything and touching all the wood that i can see in the room (laughs) yeah absolutely okay so i always ask uh, guests on the podcast three drinks for the rest of your life what are they going to be and why uh yeah i knew you were going to ask me this question and it's obviously a really a really tough one for somebody like me who's a bit of an equal opportunity booze hound um (laughs) But if if I was pressed, if we're desert island time, I would probably say um, just a really good Australian craft pale ale. You know, something like the Mismatch Pale Ale or the Jetty Road XPA. Just you know, a good amount of fruit, a good amount of hops, a good amount of malt. Something that's nice to drink on a hot day, but that has enough kind of body and interest and flavour that it'll it'll stand up to food. Because yeah, I probably drink something along those lines more often than anything else. Um, also definitely like some kind of Jura Sauvignon. I drink a lot of wine and I love drinking lots of different kinds of wine, but something like that, that has a little bit of that oxidative character. So it kind of ticks the sherry box and I definitely drink more white than red. Um, and I just love that kind of like weird textural, you know, a, a little bit sort of um, minerally and salty. Those are my favorite kind of white wines. Um, so I'd, I'd definitely have that on the list. Uh, it's so good. Um, obviously, I would be very sad not to be able to drink all the other ones. But if I had to pick one right now, that's the one. Um, and apart from that, probably just a really solid single malt whiskey. Um, you know, nothing too smoky, nothing with too much sherry influence, something really kind of like honeyed and textural. Um you know, along the lines of like an old Pultney 17 or uh, even like a Miyagikyo 12-year-old from Japan. Um, Springbank has done some of my favorite ones. Just, yeah, something that's got that real kind of um, butter and honey on toast sort of thing. Uh, those are the those are the malts that I go for more often than not. And, and they also go well with pale ale, so I'd be able to at least mix it up a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I like the sound of that. That's so funny that you said butter on toast because I was talking to someone the other day and we were talking about how some of the best Chardonnays are like, you know, butter on white bread toast. So maybe it's just that comfort factor of how good is toast? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's it. And that's why I say like not too much smoke and not too much sherry influence because I really like to be able to taste the actual malt character of a whiskey. Um, You know, when you can taste the sort of the original uh, grains that went into it, that's my favorite. Yeah. I totally agree. I think they're three really solid choices, and I don't say that to anyone, so uh, well done. 
Good, good. I'm, I'm glad I passed the test. Yeah, you definitely did. You did. I knew you would. <laughs> Fred, it's been illuminating getting to know more about you and your incredible world. Um, I really hope our paths cross again soon. I'm counting on you to come and have a glass of wine or something delicious with me soon. So keep in touch. And thanks for making the time to chat with me today. Mate, it's my absolute pleasure. And obviously, next time you're down this way, let me know and we'll go for a whiskey. Sounds like a plan. Cheers to you, mate. Thanks again. All right. Thanks. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.